You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Come roam with me the unsettled forest through, where scenes sublime shall meet your wandering view. The settler's farm with blazing fires o'erspread, the hunter's cabin and the Indian shed, the log-built hamlet deep in wilds embraced, the awful silence of the unpeopled waste. These few lines of poetry serve as the opening to The Belladune Mysteries, an o'er-true story, written by Neil T. MacDonald and published around 1870. It tells the story of the author's father, John MacDonald, and his family's struggle with a malevolent supernatural force starting in the year 1829. Since its publication, it has become a classic Canadian legend shared countless times in newspaper articles, magazines, and in various collections of folklore and ghost stories in print and online. No matter who's telling the story, the climax and resolution are always the same. Thanks to a clairvoyant teenage girl, John learns that a neighbor is the cause of his family's troubles. It's revealed that the neighbor, who lives on the edge of a swamp in a long, low log house, is actually an evil witch. She hides in plain sight while visiting their farm by taking the form of a strange, black-headed goose. Following the clairvoyant girl's instructions, John crafts a single silver bullet, locates the goose, and shoots it, injuring one of its wings. John then hurries alone to the old woman's property and finds her on the porch, muttering to herself and nursing a broken arm. The curse of the Baldoon Witch is broken, and the MacDonald family live happily ever after. At least, that's what the legend tells us. But a quick study of both historical and modern accounts reveals that the tale of the Baldoon Witch and Black-Headed Goose is just one explanation among many, and the lore behind the legend is far more complex than one might expect. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Join me tonight for part two of the Baldoon Mystery as we look closer at one of Ontario's most famous spooky tales and learn about the stories behind the story. We'll talk about all the theories behind this strange phenomena, perhaps the most popular coming from modern paranormal researchers and the most overlooked coming from the indigenous neighbors of the McDonald's. By the end, you'll have a greater insight into a truly bizarre Canadian story and what it suggests about Canadian culture, Gothic storytelling, and the settlers' relationship with the land. The Baldoon Mystery is a strange bit of folklore. Celebrated as a quote-unquote true ghost story, it appears in books with names like Ghost Stories of Canada and Ghost Stories of Ontario, but it might be one of the only ghost stories in the world that doesn't actually have a ghost. The bulk of Neil MacDonald's tale describes all the classic hallmarks of a poltergeist haunting, yet it's revealed in the last quarter of the book that the cause of the trouble wasn't a spirit at all, but rather a witch who lived nearby. It's all a bit jarring, really, like hearing a story about someone being drained of blood in the middle of the night with two distinct bite marks on their neck and then learning that it wasn't a vampire, but a werewolf that was preying on the victim. The explanation is in the right neighborhood, but it doesn't quite fit with the narrative. And maybe that's why the story is still known today as the Baldoon Mystery and not the Baldoon Witch, as if people can't quite bring themselves to accept the explanation. Maybe the mystery was never actually solved. Though Neil MacDonald's book tells us his own father forged a silver bullet, shot a black-headed goose, and thwarted a local witch who was intent on stealing his land, it's very likely that none of that is true. It's far more likely that those details were either a bit of family legend in the MacDonald household, or simply fabricated by the author a full 40 years after the incident 
to get some closure and undoubtedly make a little money on the side by selling a book. There's probably a reason why McDonald's original title, The Belladoon Mysteries and Over True Story, was later exchanged for something more in line with the fiction of the time from authors like Robert Chambers and Algernon Blackwood, becoming The Baldoon Mystery Weird and Startling. All this is to say that if a movie was made about the Baldoon Mystery today, the marketing would tell us it was inspired by true events or based on a true story. You would be left to decide for yourself which part of the tale was true and which part was added to simply tell a good story. And that question is the perfect place to start. After all, everyone asks the same question when they hear the story for the first time. Is any of it true? Well, let's find out. Part 1. Strange but True Events So is the Baldoon mystery a true story? The answer is yes, to a point. Something unexplained did indeed happen to the MacDonald family in 1829. A recently uncovered newspaper article tells of a, quote, weird and malicious ghost that sent the good people of a Scottish settlement into great consternation, end quote. It describes the various fires, the destruction of John MacDonald's house, the noises, which it calls dreadfully superhuman, and the mysterious slugs of lead. It also adds a rather dramatic and demonic element not found in Neil MacDonald's book. Quote, Having retired into a room with the doors and windows closed, the noises continued, the candles burnt blue, there were strange appearances in the embers, and everyone distinctly perceived a slight smell of burning brimstone. End quote. The article doesn't mention anything about a girl with second sight, a swamp witch, or a dark-headed goose, but that's not surprising. This newspaper was printed in November of 1829, and according to legend, the McDonald's would not find relief for at least another 12 months. Understandably, then, the article simply notes that the family has, quote, sent deputations in various directions to procure the attendance of a preacher, end quote. One such preacher was a man named Kakewa Kwanabe, English name Peter Jones, an Ojibwe chief, Methodist minister, translator, and author from Burlington Heights, Upper Canada, now Ontario. In his book, History of the Ojibwe Indians, Jones mentions visiting what we can assume was the McDonald farm after hearing rumors of various paranormal events. There will be more on him later. Now, some of you more attentive listeners might be asking, what about that poor school teacher from Michigan, Robert Barker? Legend tells us he tried to witch-proof the McDonald home only to be arrested for his troubles. Was that true? Is there an official record of him? Well, I'm happy to report, and feel a bit terrible for his sake, that yes, a record of Mr. Barker's trial does exist. Now, it's almost certain that he had only the best of intentions when he knocked on the door and offered to help the McDonald's with their problematic spirit. But unfortunately, according to two eyewitnesses, Barker's melancholy demeanor and strange ways were enough to convince the locals that he was a charlatan and that he was either behind the whole thing or simply trying to take advantage of a desperate family. The story goes he was eventually arrested and charged with pretending to practice witchcraft, and it seems that he was indeed held for six months awaiting trial. According to John Robert Colombo's book, Mysteries of Ontario, Barker's trial finally took place on April 14, 1830, in an area that's now part of Windsor, Ontario. The jury found poor Mr. Barker guilty and the magistrate sentenced him to one year of prison. Along with prison time, his punishment required that he be pilloried on the last day of each quarter. That's where they lock your head and arms in a wooden frame and let the townsfolk throw things at you. Fortunately for Mr. Barker, the magistrate allowed him to appeal. Less than one month later, the harried schoolteacher was pardoned and allowed to return home to Michigan. One final piece of evidence that something of historic note actually occurred on the Baldoon farm comes in the form of 26 individual testimonies found in the back of Neil MacDonald's book. These testimonies support much of what he claims, from unexplained onslaughts of flying rocks and lead shot to floating objects 
to mysterious ghostly fires that would eventually turn the McDonald home into charred rubble. It is odd, however, that few of these eyewitness accounts go beyond the quote-unquote mysteries themselves. Reading these testimonies, it seems that everyone agrees that something mysterious and possibly supernatural occurred in 1829, but not everyone agrees about the cause of the conflict or its resolution. Perhaps the most compelling statement is that of L. A. McDougall, the neighbor who came to the aid of the McDonald women when the paranormal events first occurred. His is the longest and most detailed of the 26 accounts, and much of his story seems to have directly influenced Neil McDonald's narrative. It is strange, however, that McDougall doesn't say a word about silver bullets, strange geese, witches, or teenage girls. In fact, many of the witness testimonies, placed at the back of the book to lend some credence to the legend, fail to mention these key elements of the story. Why is that? Well, McDougall gives us some insight here as well. In 1894, 24 years after MacDonald published his book, and a lifetime after the event, a reporter from the Toronto Globe tracked down Mr. McDougall and asked him what he thought about Neil MacDonald's book. To quote McDougall, most of it was lies anyhow. Now that doesn't mean McDougall was calling the whole thing a sham. Even at the ripe old age of 84, he still recalled the stones inexplicably flying through the windows. It seems that, according to McDougall, the lies were all of the details and explanations provided at the end of the story, the psychic girl, the goose, and the witch. In actuality, McDougall said, quote, it ended as suddenly as it began. They simply stopped themselves, and it became like any other house after a year of excitement, end quote. It seems that many of the people who witnessed the events firsthand, and whose testimony was included in MacDonald's book, agree with McDougall. They make no mention of a witch or a dark-headed goose at all. So now we know that something strange did in fact occur in Baldoon around 1829. But after reading various accounts from the time, we begin to doubt the cause of the problems, and the story's ultimate resolution. So that makes us wonder, if a witch didn't cause the Baldoon mystery, what did? Well, like so many Canadian legends, we might find the answer if we study the land and the people from which it came. Part 2. A Land of Death, Disaster, and War Some say that the land itself was cursed. Founded in 1804 by Thomas Douglas, the 5th Earl of Selkirk, Baldoon was the Earl's well-intentioned yet disastrous attempt to provide some relief for the poor Scottish farmers who were being displaced by the Highland Clearances, an infamous part of Scottish history considered by many to be the first modern example of ethnic cleansing. Unfortunately, though Selkirk seemed to be remarkably compassionate and charitable, he wasn't so great at land assessment. The settlement of Belladune, as it was called at the time, was established on the swampy banks of the Chanel Écarté, known locally as the Sny, a remote distributary of the St. Clair River. The first 102 settlers, having been torn from their highland homes and sent on a boat to the New World, arrived in the humidity of mid-July, at the height of mosquito season, in a soggy wasteland crawling with rattlesnakes and black bears. They learned that the advance party, sent ahead by Selkirk to build homes and ready the farm, had utterly failed in their task. Faced with a barren landscape and little shelter, nearly two dozen people succumbed to malaria and other diseases. According to one history book, 42 people died that first year alone as they struggled through a harsh Canadian winter in makeshift tents fashioned from scavenged ship sails then did what they could to raise sheep and grow crops in the swampy soil of the marsh. A few years passed, and while life was never easy, the little settlement grew, and they made the best of what they had, until another twist of fate and politics destroyed their world for a second time. The War of 1812 brought an army of American invaders to their new home. Their farm was raided, their livestock stolen, People were killed, livelihoods destroyed. 
Baldoon was eventually abandoned, and many of the Scots moved to more stable ground, helping to establish the little town of Wallaceburg, Ontario, named after the Scottish folk hero Sir William Wallace. Others, like Donald MacDonald, Neil MacDonald's grandfather, chose to settle nearby. To the settlers of Baldoon, their new home was a land of ghosts, and many lived haunted lives. They had been forced from their homes. They traveled six months to get here, only to meet death and disease, floods and snowstorms, failing crops, and American raiding parties who stole much of their livelihood. At one point in the legend of the Baldoon mystery, Donald MacDonald and his minister friend are riding through a forest known as the Long Woods when they encounter the sound of a ghostly army. Neil MacDonald describes the noise as, quote, two multitudes who seem to meet in mortal combat, end quote. This is likely a reference to the Battle of Longwoods, which took place during the War of 1812. A mounted American raiding party clashed with and defeated a group of British regulars, Canadian militia volunteers, and indigenous allies. The British forces saw 14 killed and 51 wounded, to America's four and three, respectively. This reference to the battle makes it clear that the war was still fresh in the minds of many Canadians and that the locals may have still been haunted by the ghosts of the past. Reminders of the violence were everywhere. West of Baldoon, just across the channel, wild ponies once roamed St. Anne Island. The spoils of war seized by the local Potawatomi from the southern Iroquois nation as they fought alongside their allies in 1812. It's even rumored that the secret burial site of Chief Tecumseh, a folk hero who died in the war, is in a secret or perhaps unknown location on one of the nearby islands. Moving beyond the borders of Upper Canada, this idea of the past haunting the living was certainly on the minds of John MacDonald's neighbors back in 1829 as they tried to explain the cause of the troubling paranormal activity. In his 1894 interview, neighbor L.A. McDougall notes, quote, Some said MacDonald sold one of his children to the devil in the old country, but I never believed that story, for he always seemed a respectable, quiet man, end quote. With this new information about the Baldoon settlement's tragic history and the culture of its people, the different supernatural events and their explanations become even more fascinating. Perhaps the history of famine, sickness, and war played a part in the phenomenon, or, as MacDougall mentioned, perhaps a terrible sin committed by the family patriarch in the old country brought about divine punishment. But that's only part of the story. The land the settlers called Baldoon has a history that is much older. Part 3 the Little People of the Land. The poem I read at the start of the episode, the poem that's quoted at the beginning of Neil MacDonald's book, suggests that the area of Baldoon was an unpeopled waste, to quote the last line. But that really wasn't the case. Archaeological evidence shows that neighboring Walpole Island has been populated for at least 6,000 years and local historians seem pretty sure that an indigenous burial ground was located somewhere near the MacDonald farm. A short-lived 1796 treaty reserved the land around the Chanel Eckhart for displaced indigenous people from across the southern border, but that treaty was simply ignored a few years later when the land was reclaimed and sold off, and the settlement of Baldoon was born. But from what I can tell, the Baldoon settlers didn't actively displace a particular population of indigenous people who were living in that exact spot, unlike other darker chapters of Canadian history. This was a land of rattlesnakes and bears, after all. But there was, at least, already a presence of some kind. According to some, that presence may have been both natural and supernatural in origin. Peter Jones, the Ojibwe chief, minister, and author I mentioned earlier, was on a missionary tour to Walpole Island at the same time that the Baldoon mystery was taking place. Like many others, he had heard about the strange events, and he asked the local chief for his thoughts on the matter. Jones writes, quote, He replied, Oh, I know all about that. The place on which the white man's house now stands was the former residence of the Memigwesiwug, or fairies. Our forefathers used to see them on the bank of the river, 
When the white man came and pitched his wigwam on the spot where they lived, they were moved back to the poplar grove, where they have been living for several years. Last spring, this white man went and cleared and burnt this grove, and the fairies have again been obliged to remove. Their patience and forbearance were now exhausted. They felt indignant at such treatment and were venting their vengeance at the white man by destroying his property. The old chief uttered these words as if he fully believed in the existence of these imaginary beings and in their power to harm those who dared to disturb their habitations. End quote. Now let's stop for a second to make an important note for the future. Before engaging in any kind of landscaping, one should always check for signs of memiguesiwug. Apparently, failure to do so could cause these vengeful creatures to burn your house to the ground and otherwise make your life a living nightmare. But what are they exactly? Well, Jones calls them fairies, but these little creatures don't have much in common with Tinkerbell. Many North American indigenous cultures have legends that tell of a little people, a diminutive race of what some might call dwarves, elves, or fairies, two to four feet in height, known for their hairy faces, both on males and females, and their mischievous nature. They tend to keep to themselves, but are known to occasionally play pranks on humans living nearby. They have many names, Pukwudgie, Kenotila, Manigishi, and, to the Anishinaabeg, Memigwesi, a word that, according to Jones, means hidden or covered being. Some say these magical spirits can only be seen by children or the very wise, and only when they want to be seen. They can bring luck or skill to those who give them gifts or treat them nicely, but they can also be a vindictive menace if they feel they have not been shown the proper respect. Peter Jones also tells us that they have a particular penchant for firearms and ammunition. They've been caught stealing powder and shot from hunters, and can often be heard gleefully firing their stolen rifles far off in the forest or across the river. If we're looking for a creature or a spirit who could fire bullets through windows and manipulate household objects without being seen, well, they certainly fit the bill. So maybe the Walpole Island chief was right. Maybe the MacDonald family, unfamiliar with the land and its lore, inadvertently angered ancient local spirits by destroying part of the environment and were now suffering the repercussions. In fact, two of Neil MacDonald's 26 corroborating statements found in the back of his book are attributed to indigenous people, Solomon Partarsung and Rerenasua. Both men attribute the cause of the Baldoon mystery to what they called, quote, wild Indians, end quote, who apparently lived on a prairie south of the farm and coveted John MacDonald's land. But it's unclear what the term wild Indians actually means. In his statement, Solomon Partarsung notes, quote, What you call witchcraft, we call wild Indians. They have their abode in a small prairie on the same farm, but could not be seen at any time. End quote. That certainly sounds like a reference to the Mamigwesiwug and their ability to hide themselves from others. Rere Nasawa is a little more esoteric, stating of the culprits, quote, we were aware of their doings and tried to tell him, MacDonald, what we knew about them, but we could not understand each other's language, end quote. Language differences certainly would have been a formidable obstacle for the Baldoon settlers to overcome, but cultural differences would have also come into play. When struggling to come up with an answer for the strange, unexplainable things that were happening all around them, it would have been a leap for the MacDonalds or indeed any settler to accept that little, invisible, furry-faced gun enthusiasts were involved. Certainly, Scotland has more than its share of fairy lore, and a lot of comparisons can be drawn between European fairies and Mamigwesiwug, but in 1829, among a large group of poorly educated Christian folk, witchcraft may have been at the top of their list of explanations. For the people of Baldoon, a belief in witches and witchcraft was a part of their culture. From the mid-14th to the mid-17th centuries, thousands of Scots, mostly women, were found guilty of witchcraft and murdered, usually by strangulation, before being burned. The last trial in Scotland was held in 1727, barely 100 years before the events at Baldoon. 
That belief in folk magic and witches persisted, especially in the Scottish Highlands and Islands, the birthplace of Baldoon's first settlers. I think that, because of this, the explanation offered by the local indigenous people was, and has remained, largely ignored. Which is a shame, because the explanation offers a compelling and suitable reason for both the Baldoon mystery and other similar cases that have occurred throughout the United States and Canada. Divine Punishment for Human Trafficking A Malevolent Swamp Witch Angered Spirits of the Land Seeking Retribution All of these theories provide excellent insight into how the people of the mid-19th century thought about the supernatural. But for many modern readers and researchers, the cause of the Baldoon mystery is obvious. Forget the curses, magic, witches, and fairies, they say. The McDonald's were clearly victims of a poltergeist. Part 4. They're here. The Baldoon mystery has all the staples of a classic poltergeist haunting. The ghostly noises, the moving objects, the seemingly intelligent, playful nature of the activities, even the fires. Plus, there's the fact that Baldoon could have been founded on, or very close to, an ancient indigenous burial ground. But the most intriguing element might be the presence of a young girl. Opinion is still split on exactly what, if anything, a poltergeist actually is. Among believers, some say it's a particularly mischievous and noisy ghost with a talent for throwing things. Some think it's not a spirit, but rather some kind of intelligent but unseen force, while others maintain it's a manifestation of a person's latent psychic or telekinetic ability. Dr. A. R. G. Owen, mathematician, author, psychical researcher, and skeptic of witchcraft, magic, and sorcery, puts it this way, quote, Having cast witches, demons, and elves out of our intellectual scheme of things, there are only two admissible theories, the psychological and the mediumistic, end quote. In either case, Owen says, activities like those seen in the Baldoon mystery tend to center around a person rather than a place and that person serves as a short-term lightning rod for paranormal activity. Poltergeist activity and the presence of an adolescent, usually a female, are closely associated in paranormal research. The historian, broadcaster, and hobbyist paranormal researcher R.S. Lambert was one of the first to make that connection with the Baldoon mystery. In his book, Exploring the Supernatural, the Weird in Canadian Folklore, Lambert compares the events on the McDonald farm with other similar cases across the globe and notes that an adolescent is usually present in what he calls poltergeist infestations. He quotes famous paranormal researcher and personal friend Harry Price, There must be something, either psychological or physiological, in a young girl's organism that turns her into a girl witch or poltergeist attractor. Lambert goes on to declare that the idea of a witch being the cause of the Baldoon mystery is, quote, far-fetched and even ridiculous, end quote. He argues instead that the force behind the Baldoon mystery was undoubtedly a poltergeist and that the catalyst was an adolescent girl who lived on the McDonald farm. The name of Jane McDonald is only mentioned once in the entirety of Neil McDonald's book, and she doesn't even make it into the main narrative. Instead, she appears very briefly in one of the 26 entries in the book's appendix. Neighbor L. A. McDougall mentions in passing, quote, a young girl who had been brought up in the family, end quote. She was likely one of the women who encountered the falling poles in the barn, and later, the lead shot and river stones that flew through the windows of the farmhouse. Despite her marginal presence in the story, Lambert was convinced that Jane was the key writing, quote, Everything points to the conclusion that Jane MacDonald was in some way connected with the manifestations, end quote. Was Jane the unknowing attractant of a mischievous spirit, or perhaps in possession of an undiscovered telekinetic power? Using the modern lens of paranormal research and parapsychology, it certainly seems plausible. Of course, a modern perspective also brings one more theory that the Baldoon mystery wasn't supernatural at all. Part 5. Party Poopers 
A big part of what makes these kinds of stories so much fun is speculating about the supernatural, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the less exciting explanations. While we're on the topic of poltergeists, it's important to mention that a large number of skeptical investigators, psychical researchers, and other experts have claimed that most, if not all, poltergeist cases are the result of human mischief-makers, the delusions of those affected, and the exaggeration of credulous witnesses. As far back as 1897, researcher Frank Podmore proposed something called the Naughty Little Girl Theory. In his book, Studies in Psychical Research, Podmore suggests that poltergeist activity is not the result of a mischievous spirit or an uncontrolled telekinetic mind. Rather, it is the outbursts of a child, often a young girl, who is ill, neurotic, deeply unhappy, or simply bored. Frank Mann, an historian from nearby Wallaceburg, Ontario, offers another explanation. His theory fits the traditional narrative of a rival neighbor, plus the destruction of a piece of land and the subsequent indigenous retribution, but the cause is much more mundane than magical. In his 1968 book, A History of Wallaceburg and Vicinity, 1804 to the Present, Mann tells us that another family in the Baldoon settlement wanted to expand their farm by purchasing some land from the McDonald's, but the McDonald's refused to sell. Angered by their refusal, the family secretly desecrated an indigenous burial ground that was located somewhere between the two properties, then alerted the nearby indigenous settlement and told them that the McDonald's were to blame. Mann postulates that the neighbor then encouraged the indigenous people to enact their revenge by harassing the McDonald's day and night. Shooting at their home using muskets loaded with stones, setting fire to their buildings with flaming arrows, and poisoning their livestock. Apparently, these vigilantes had ninja skills that would make Batman blush, as they somehow managed to do all of this for months without ever getting spotted. The story goes that, eventually, word of the mysterious attack spread, attention grew, and the rival family became concerned that their scheme would soon be discovered. They asked the indigenous group to stop their assault, then personally invented the story of the witch and dark-headed goose. Suddenly, a local legend was born, and the rest is history. To skeptics looking for answers beyond witches, fairies, and ghosts, this version of events is certainly plausible, and there is evidence that the McDonald's had a centuries-old rival with another family back in Scotland. According to historic records, both clans arrived in Canada on the same ship, and the bad blood of the old world was carried to the new. But as compelling as all this is, it still leaves us with a number of questions, like why didn't anyone ever catch a glimpse of angry people firing rock-filled muskets and flaming arrows at the house? And how do we account for the dancing firearms, floating kettles, and dog-chasing ladles? If we're to take the various paranormal events at face value, it's exceptionally hard to write them off as hoaxes or misunderstandings. They're just too weird to fully explain. So now I've talked at length about all the things that could have been behind the Baldoon mystery, and it's clear that the traditional culprit, the vindictive swamp witch, is in all likelihood not a part of the original legend. We've reviewed evidence that Neil MacDonald likely added that detail much later with his book. As we learned, Few of the supporting testimonies even mention witchcraft, let alone an epic showdown between man and goose. In fact, the McDonald's neighbor who is mentioned by name in the story calls most of that story lies. So let's talk about that. Now that we've discovered at length the potential causes of the Baldoon mystery, what about the resolution? If the dark-headed goose and witch were lies, to use McDougal's word, what about the clairvoyant girl and her father from Long Point? Did they help? If there was no black-headed goose or old woman in a long, low log house, how did the mystery end? Part 6. Who are you going to call? Here's where I get to tell you about one of my favorite characters in all of Canadian folklore. No, scratch that all folklore across the globe, Dr. John Troyer. Oh man, I love John Troyer. Farmer, 
businessman, medical practitioner, and why not, treasure hunter, exorcist, and witch hunter. I consider him the Canadian Van Helsing, if Van Helsing was a real person, and instead of vampires, he battled witches instead. Also, unlike Van Helsing, Troyer wasn't actually a doctor. He was more, let's say, a medical enthusiast rather than a professional. His medical focus was mainly on bloodletting and herbal remedies, but for many in the area, that was good enough. Troyer certainly deserves his own episode of Fireside Canada, so I don't want to go into too much detail just yet, but needless to say, there are a number of legends about the man and his adventures, and many in Upper Canada knew his name by reputation. Back in 1829, if there was something strange in your neighborhood, you called John Troyer. According to local legend, that's exactly what the McDonald family did. But the results, well, that's where things get a bit complicated. It's generally accepted as part of the folklore of Longpoint and John Troyer himself that the doctor of Longpoint who Donald McDonald and the minister visited was none other than Dr. John Troyer, and that the clairvoyant girl was either Troyer's niece or simply an orphaned girl that Troyer and his wife took in. Now, several testimonies and different versions of the legend confirm that Troyer had some measure of involvement in the Baldoon mystery, but the participation and even the existence of the supposedly clairvoyant girl is less certain. Some of the testimonies in Neil MacDonald's book do mention a clairvoyant girl, but it's clear that they're just repeating this story as they heard it. After all, the story tells us that only Donald MacDonald and his minister friend actually saw the doctor and his daughter. And then there are two other accounts that directly contradict this version of events. One comes from the son of the minister who was said to have accompanied MacDonald on his long ride to Longpoint. In this version, there is no young clairvoyant girl. Instead, it is the unnamed doctor who possesses the supernatural gift of stone reading, and he actually joins the men in their journey back to Baldoon. Once at the MacDonald farm, the doctor consults his stone and remarks, rather mysteriously, quote, Oh, I see, I see. This is a new way they have of making folks suffer, end quote. The doctor stays the weekend and, once Monday rolls around, tells the McDonald's that whatever is troubling them, quote, will do nothing then, but might try once more, end quote. According to the minister's son's agonizingly vague account, quote, the doctor told McDonald what was being done and who was doing it, and said if they'd done anything more, they would be punished with death. My father, the minister, then wanted to know what had caused the trouble and the doctor said it was about land, end quote. That's it. No goose, no witch, no silver bullet. Just a guy with a rock who hangs out for a weekend and then declares that the event is over. The minister's son recalls, quote, Nothing further has, to our knowledge, happened to disturb the families who have since rented the farm, end quote. The second contradicting testimony is given by a Mr. Abram Reichman, and, like the minister's son, he also claims that the Long Point doctor actually came to Baldoon. What's more, he identifies the doctor as Dr. Troyer. He writes, quote, I also saw Jonathan T. MacDonald and Dr. Troyer when on their way to this house. MacDonald had heard that the doctor could stop such troubles. They stayed all night at Captain Arnold's, our nearest neighbor, and we went over to see what he had to say about the mystery, for we were very much interested. The captain asked the doctor what he thought about the trouble, and he said that there was one more building to be burned before the trouble could be stopped. The captain said, why not save the building? And the doctor answered, it is not for you or anyone else to know that part of the story. End quote. Finally, there's more to be heard from Peter Jones. The indigenous chief, minister, and author I mentioned earlier actually ran into Dr. John Troyer on the road, shortly after making his own attempt to solve the mystery. Jones was heading east, away from Baldoon, and Troyer was heading west. Jones writes, quote, On my return from the St. Clair, I met an old man who, from his appearance, 
wearing a long, flowing beard, I judged must be the witch doctor. I therefore asked him if he were Mr. Troyer. He replied, I am. He then positively stated that he knew the whole affair was witchcraft and that he would soon make a finish of the witches, end quote. Okay, now here's the best bit. Quote, I was afterwards informed that he began to expel them by firing off guns loaded with silver bullets, which he stated were the only kind of weapons which could take effect upon a witch. While he was in the midst of his maneuvering, the neighboring magistrate, hearing of what was going on, issued a warrant to take him into custody. The great doctor, being apprised, quickly made his escape to his own quiet home. Thus ended the whole affair of the supposed witches and fairies. End quote. Did you get that? If we combine all three of these accounts, we get something amazing. John Troyer, witch hunter extraordinaire, shows up at the McDonald farm with a magic rock, silver bullets, and guns ablazing. He causes so much commotion that it alerts the authorities. Then he runs back home before the cops can nab him. Don't you just love this guy? Now, it's worth mentioning that Neil McDonald's narrative doesn't name the mysterious doctor from Longpoint or his daughter. Neither does the account of his old neighbor and likely biggest influence on the narrative, L.A. McDougall. Both men do mention the name Troyer, but they assign it to a Catholic priest who, they say, tried and failed to bring an end to the activities that plagued the McDonald family. They call him Reverend Father Troyer of Longwoods, but that doesn't make much sense. John Troyer was a German Baptist and of Pennsylvania Dutch descent. He certainly wasn't Catholic, let alone a priest of the Catholic Church. Now, it could be that the Reverend was a different person entirely who just happened to have the same last name, but the addition of the words of Longwoods suggests that he is supposed to be the John Troyer of legend. So if that's the case, why would the story transform him into a priest? Well, the answer I've come up with is complicated. It involves history, culture, and family tradition, and is part of the answer to an even bigger question. Part 7. Toil and Trouble The Baldoon mystery has all the hallmarks of a classic haunting, either by a poltergeist or a demon or invisible fairy folk. The witch almost feels tacked on, She's not even mentioned in several accounts from the time, and yet the imagery of the goose and the old woman living near the swamp are now essential parts of the legend. This is primarily due to Neil MacDonald's book, the definitive version of the events, despite the fact that other accounts at the time made no mention of any sort of witch or witchcraft. So let's assume for a moment that MacDonald's neighbor was right, that his book was mostly lies, and that there was no witch. Why would Neil MacDonald say that there was? Well, one reason could be that, by the time he wrote his book, the Baldoon mystery was well known among the local population, and already closely associated with witchcraft. If that's the case, that association is probably due to John Troyer, or at least Troyer's reputation. Considering the various accounts, it's almost certain that the famous witch hunter was involved in some capacity. It's certainly established now in folklore. In fact, Troyer's role in the Baldoon mystery is his best-remembered legend. Maybe Troyer and his family did provide the oracular insight that led to the foiling of the swamp witch. Maybe, through some ancient art, he personally put an end to the haunting. Or maybe he simply showed up one day laden with silver bullets and feeling a bit trigger-happy. Either way, his reputation would have colored how the locals perceived the events and thus swayed their conclusions towards witchcraft. It must have been a witch. Why else would a famous witch hunter get involved? If this were indeed the case, it would make sense for Neil MacDonald to keep his written account consistent with the oral legend. The people expected a witch, so he gave them one. It's also more than likely that Neil MacDonald was simply repeating a family story, no doubt told to him countless times growing up. It's true that some of the statements in the appendix of his book contradict key elements like the clairvoyant teenager, the goose, and the witch, but many others confirm it, 
so it's unlikely that the entire story was pure fiction from his imagination. Then there's also the fact that the curse of a swamp witch just makes for a great story. If something similar were to happen to your family, what would make for a better narrative? Here is option one. A terrible, supernatural activity plagued your family. Objects moved around the room. Your crops and animals died. Your home burned to the ground. But it all suddenly stopped a year or so later without any hint of explanation. That's not satisfying. There's no closure, no winner, no reason or logic behind your family's suffering. Just chaos. Okay, here's option two. A terrible and greedy witch placed a curse on your family. They bravely faced the evil head-on, never giving up hope. Eventually, they learned the cause of the curse, fashioned a righteous weapon, and with it, smote the witch and brought an end to her evil. Now that's more like it. In the true spirit of late 19th century colonial romance comes a classic tale of noble pioneers overcoming adversity and conquering the misfortunes of a wild, untamed land where witches and rattlesnakes roam free. There's one last thing to consider, and it speaks to that earlier question I brought up as to why John Troyer was reframed as a failed Catholic priest. If Neil MacDonald's narrative of the Baldoon mystery is indeed a retelling of a MacDonald family legend, that might explain why Troyer's role was either shifted to make him seem ineffective or was removed completely. Some locals might have considered the Baldoon mystery one of the greatest John Troyer legends, but for the McDonald's, it was their story. They lived it, they suffered from it, and they weren't about to let some long-bearded weirdo take it from them. If there was going to be a hero, it was going to be John McDonald, the young father who, by all accounts, was a good man and saw his family through whatever mysterious suffering they were forced to endure. Sure, a Troyer, or later the daughter of a nameless doctor, might have told them about the cause of their troubles, but in their story, a MacDonald risked life and limb to gain this information. A MacDonald forged the silver bullet. A MacDonald pulled the trigger. And a MacDonald defeated the evil that plagued the family. In this way, the details of the story don't matter. Neil MacDonald's book is a veritable parade of gothic elements. There are ghosts and phantom soldiers, disembodied voices in spooky woods, a buried cursed object, defeated religious leaders, mysterious fires, a shape-shifting witch, even a black dog makes an appearance. But it's all in service to a greater story. Professor Cynthia Sugars of the University of Ottawa has suggested that Canadian writers in the 19th century used Gothic forms as a way of finding a comfortable habitat in an overwhelming, engulfing, and alien landscape, an unpeopled waste, as MacDonald alludes in the opening of his book. For its author, perhaps, the Baldoon mystery is less about strange, paranormal events and more about one family's resilience in the face of adversity. The Baldoon mystery will always be just that, a mystery, as unsolvable now as it was then. And that's what makes this legend so much fun. Whatever we believe to be the answer, it makes for a great story, and one that speaks to its environment and its surrounding cultures. In an essay on the subject, anthropologist Lisa Phillips and political scientist Alan McDougall observe that the legend, quote, has been transformed over time to fit the contemporary social context, end quote. From demons to indigenous spirits, to old world witchcraft, to ghosts, and then finally to modern parapsychology, the legend has carried them all. In some ways, the story of the Baldoon mystery is the story of the Baldoon settlement. On one hand, it's the story of a people's resilience and determination, and of their ability to persevere and overcome the challenges of an unfamiliar land, the classic tale of the pioneer's struggle. On the other hand, like the little people of Anishinaabe traditional beliefs, there is more to the story hidden just out of sight. Like a lot of Canadian history, the story largely ignores the First Nations. Phillips and McDougall go so far as to say that it has, quote, 
erased First Nations' connection to the land and its supernatural inhabitants, end quote, in favor of, quote, stories of pioneer fortitude, or alternatively, of historical paranormal activity to encourage the tourist trade, end quote. The work of people like Phillips and McDougall are bringing the area's first residents, both human and supernatural, back into the picture, and thus creating a new narrative for the age of truth and reconciliation. With this new perspective, the Baldoon mystery is a metaphor for European encroachment on indigenous land, and the torment the McDonald's face is the resistance of those who originally called that land home. It just might be another example of the myth transforming to fit a contemporary social context. Today, the Baldoon Witch and the Dark-Headed Goose are still going strong. The Selkirk History Fair, held annually just outside of Wallaceburg, celebrates the 1804 arrival of the Baldoon settlers, and has included reenactors dressed as the Witch of Legend, as well as young Jane MacDonald. Together, they hint that it was Jane's pyromaniacal tendencies and love of mischief that caused all the commotion back in 1829. There's a black goose grill that sits along the Sny River in Wallaceburg. Apparently, they have a great buffet and a black goose statue dedicated in 2004 as part of the region's bicentennial that stands proudly in a nearby park. When an old house, widely and wrongly believed to be the last of the McDonald buildings, burnt to the ground in 1930, the Baldoon curse was blamed. And, of course, the tale of the Baldoon mystery is still told in articles, YouTube videos, blog entries, podcasts, and books, in much the same way it appeared when it was first printed back in 1870. As a ghost story, the Baldoon mystery is one of Canada's best. It has all the familiar beats of a poltergeist haunting combined with the drama of a family feud and the plot twist of a shape-shifting witch. It also has a great payoff with a happy ending more reminiscent of an heroic epic than a ghost story. Our hero ventures into a dark and foreboding wilderness, gains knowledge from a wise oracle, then returns home with that knowledge to forge a holy weapon and destroy an evil that stalks the land. The legend might be even better as a piece of folklore, with all of its conflicting details and varied accounts. The different ways it's been shared over time to support one theory or another the different suspects, the different resolutions, all make for a rich and complex mythology that gives us a greater understanding of the various people who lived here. Like any great story, our attempts to solve its mysteries often leads us to even greater questions about history, culture, and identity. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, if you're doing a little landscaping, be sure to give the Memigwesiwug their due. You don't want to get on their bad side. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.